So the first thing that I want to share with everyone this morning is a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, have a couple of introductory thoughts here today. Um, let's pray. Our God and our Father, help us, O oh Lord, to be your humble servants, hearing your word, learning, and be instructed by you. Bless this time as we consider your words. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I'm going to... Um, reiterate something that I say frequently and I will continue to do so uh, because it's very important in, in the life of our Christian practice. When we make doctrinal distinctions or we make distinctions about scripture, the point of it is for us to uh, understand God's word better, draw nearer to him. It's not for us to uh, go around and, and simply being divisive or uh, to be to, to cause division. Um, remember that we should be operating from a, a place of grace and patience and understanding and remembering that for the most part, most of us, well, I'd say this, if, you, if, you're, if your theology of the Lord does not grow and adapt at least to a certain degree, your understanding, then I would, I would make the argument that um, you're probably not growing in the Lord. There are certain fundamentals, of course, that we know are absolutely true and sure, and that God doesn't change. Our understanding of him changes sometimes. We know that he is sovereign. Uh, we know that uh, he created us. And of course, his redemption plan, all those things are absolute and sure. Uh, but there's a, a whole great many things that have to do with growing up in maturity. And um, in maturity, we grow and we come to understandings. And I want us to, to remember that. I keep telling, uh, you know, reminding all of us that our, our theological distinctions aren't tools to beat our fellow Christians with, but rather we should see them as our brothers and sisters, co-laborers in Christ for the kingdom, even if, they don't see it the way that we understand the scriptures. Okay? Um, I can tell you this. If you want them to grow, if you want them to come to a knowledge of the understanding of scriptures, then um, this is what will happen. Um, you can be abrasive, and your ears will get clogged up to your voice, or you can build relationships and friendships and serve the Lord together in, in all kinds of ways. And in that, you will uh, find yourself with an opportunity to talk about God's word in a way that's edifying and help people grow. So I just, I just want to emphasize that because as we continue to move along here, we're going to come against a lot of the popular notions. And I, I want to say this, I'm always open for discussion. I'm always open for um, challenges. Of course, we always want those to be instructive, both from me and, and then also from you as well. So last week, um, I talked about doing some uh, <coughs> readings uh, ahead of time so that we can uh, we can take a look at um, and, and have a, a better understanding as we consider the, the Matthew uh, discourse. Um, again, I'll reiterate, we, that would be I, do believe in the second coming, the resurrection, and the final judgment. 
Um, <clears throat> don't worry, those things are right and true. Um, but it's important, remember last week we talked about this, we're going to just briefly set ourselves up just for five minutes maybe, and then we'll get into the passages uh, that we want to discuss today. And uh, we, it's important that we understand that, that what's happening in, the, in, the, uh, in Matthew, uh, or what is famously called the Olivet Discourse, um, that, you know, when does it occur, what's happening, what's the context, um, who is Jesus speaking to, um, so that we properly, we have a proper, proper context for this. And of course, um, like in all studies of Scripture, you have to take all of Scripture into consideration and say, God has one continuous story, one continuous thing in mind, and what is he doing, how does this work? And we don't apply one set of standards for, of understanding for uh, most of Scripture and then for prophecy apply a different standard for understanding. We want to use the same biblical methodologies using Scripture to understand Scripture, um, using imagery and typology that God uses throughout all of Scripture and apply it also into the prophecies as well. There's not a a separate distinctive types of images and typologies that occur in prophecy. Um, they are all together one. So remember that there's a cast of people there. Um, Jesus comes in in the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. There are uh, the masses, of course, that, that are out there celebrating Jesus. And whether they recognize it or not or totally understand all the implications, I'd argue that none of them really understood the implications of what was happening as Jesus was riding in. Um, but, but God had his intent and plan. And you know what? God receives praise from people even if they don't understand all the implications of it. That I say that because I want us to understand just because someone worships a little different than we do, as long as they declare that Jesus is Lord, that, that they're a sinner, that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to get God by the forgiveness of the sins by his work, they're our brothers and sisters, whether they understand all the technicalities or not. You know, it's funny, in, in, our, in our groupings, we, we look at that and we look at our children and, and we believe it with our children, but we won't believe it with our neighbors. Okay, don't do that. But here we see there's a, there's a whole cast of, of people. We have uh, Herod who represents, um, who represents the, uh, the false brother. We have Rome and Pontius Pilate. Um, by the way, just so everybody knows that, uh, what, can someone tell me why um, Herod is the false brother? Anybody know? What's his? What? Where? Where's he come from? What's his family? Edom. He's an Edomite. Okay. <laughs> so, so he he is ruling as the king over Israel, and he's not even an Israelite, right? He is. Uh, uh, he is. He's asserted himself in through money and influence, so that he can be the ruler over Israel. He's Esau, he's not Jacob. Okay, then you have Rome with Pontius Pilate. 
You have the high priest, which we spent some time last week talking about how the high priest um, of, of the day was not from the, the proper lineage. Um, it should have been from Ezekiel forward, from the house of Zadok. And he comes in, that his family, Caiaphas, his, Caiaphas's, Caiaphas is his name, but so it, his family comes into, to, um, into place after the Maccabees by virtue of paying the uh, Greeks for the ability to be in this role. So they pay, they pay the outside ruler, the outside nation, we want to be the high priests. And they're part of uh, Caiaphas and his father and their family are part of the group of the Sadducees, and they don't even believe in the resurrection. So what are they doing? Okay, so they're, they're leading, they're leading the atonement, the, they're leading the worship, they're doing all these things, but they don't even believe that there's a resurrection. And you see, this is what causes their, their corruption, because there's no, there's no judgment if there's no resurrection. So for them, they were just doing it for their own means. So these are all the people, and then Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple. That's his next act after the triumphant entry. Okay? And so I, I put out and sent out um, readings to be read this week. John chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 22. All right? Leviticus 14. And then uh, a passage in Matthew, which I have printed up here, but I didn't, uh, I didn't put the, the exact text before us here in, in my notes here. But I, wanna, I want to ask, um, first of all, um, that we uh, take a look at John chapter 2. Who, who would like to read verses 13 through 22 for us? John chapter 2. 13 through uh, 22. Okay, go ahead, Jen. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us to do these many things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So, uh, just to be clear, this is not the same uh, cleansing of the temple that you see in Matthew. A lot of times you see it tied that way um, by reference points, but it's not the same. How do we know that? Anybody have a guess? Time frame. That's right. It's time frame. And and if you if you look through John and you want to use other events to try to determine 
whether this was the same time or the end, you can use an event like the feeding of the 5,000 that you, you find early in Matthew, early in Jesus' ministry, and you find that in John, that the feeding of the 5,000 comes after this event here in John chapter 2. So we can see that this is an early part of Jesus' ministry. Okay, so he comes in there and he cleanses the temple. Um, they ask him some questions, and of course, it's interesting. They ask for a sign. They give him the, he, Jesus responds with the sign of Jonah, and and uh, talking about this temple will be um, torn down and resurrected. And and of course, they don't quite understand that. But sometimes I think our confusion comes that he's talking. We see that he's talking about death and resurrection, and so we can sometimes get ourselves out of order in thinking about where this is occurring. All right, so now let's take a look at... What's that? Did he not say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I did, <clears throat> it's back here. but So, so the, the sign of Jonah, Jonah was, was in the fish for three days. So he was in death, right? And then he's then he's resurrected, right? Um, and there's a whole, you know, one day we'll have to study that because there's a whole interesting thing about what's happening there. And it, it also demonstrates, Jonah is a great illustration of how um, the people of Israel were called to be the priests to the world, right? And, and there's such a resistance to go and evangelize people that are different than us. Okay, and so he calls, and it, what, here's the interesting thing. What happens when Jonah goes to Nineveh? He goes reluctantly, obviously, right? And he's actually aggravated when they do what? Right? And, and what a travesty. Now, interestingly enough, later on, what's going to happen? God's going to use Babylon, which the, the people of the Babylonians... Um, came the Assyrians, they came out of Nineveh. God's going to use them in two fashions. One, to discipline them, and two, to become protectors of God and his worship. And that develops during the time of the exile. So, uh, you're welcome. So, so we have the first time he shows up at the temple, then he does his, his ministry. This is in his early first year. Then we come to the close of his ministry. We come to the last week. Now, Jesus, remember, he's been, he has been preaching repentance, draw near to God. Um, he's been trying to realign their thinking by teaching them um, to observe the, the law. And, and that is to say, not just uh, the, the traditional law, the oral law, but actually God's word, obey and do that. And he's constantly driving this out. And then he comes and he shows up at the last week of his life in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 12 through um, the uh, verse 17. Someone please read that for us. Matthew 21, verse 12 through verse 17. Okay, go ahead. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but 
that you may get a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things which he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So there's a number of interesting things here. So Jesus goes to the temple, he drive out all those who bought and sold there. Uh, remember that it was not wrong for them to be exchanging the temple tax, okay? It's not wrong that they should be there uh, making exchanges, but they were robbing the people. They weren't, they weren't using fair... They, they knew that these worshipers had to... You see, you couldn't buy your, your, uh, you couldn't buy your sacrifice um, with any kind of money but the temple money. So if you, whatever land you came from, whatever money you brought, you had to bring it and exchange it for the temple money. And, you know, exchange rates can be particularly good for you or particularly bad for you. But these men were robbing them, unjust scales, profiting for themselves. And um, then, then Jesus comes in and he drives them out. And I'll point this out. Um, we, we know from, from some historical evidence that this was set up in the, uh, the courtyard of the Gentiles because they couldn't have done it on the interior courtyard because of the other things that were going on. So they had actually set all this up, and you couldn't. Um, they, they, they had driven out the spot for the Gentile worshipers to come and worship God, right? They were cutting off. People. And Jesus is going to condemn them later very specifically for cutting off people from worship. Now, it's interesting. Um, after he drives them out, yes? Didn't they call it the court of the Gentiles? Yes, the courtyard of the Gentiles. Uh -huh. After this, after he drives them out and he says, you've made this a den of thieves, it says, then the blind and the lame came in the temple and he healed them. Why is this important? Anybody know? They weren't allowed. So as they were coming in, Jesus was standing there and removing the barriers that were keeping them from coming in to worship God. Jesus, through his entire ministry, this is what he's doing, right? He comes and he heals people. The woman with the issue of the blood for 12 years. If you, if you had a discharge like that, you were cut off from going to the temple. If you had leprosy, you were cut off from going to the temple. Obviously, when Jesus resurrected people, you were cut off from going to the temple. But all these other things that you look at that Jesus is healing people of, you see that he's healing people, and all of those created degrees of separation from being able to go and worship God. Okay? So Jesus' ministry, whether it was on the what we like to say the spiritual side where he was realigning people's thoughts and views and helping them understand or whether he was touching them physically it was all so that people could draw near to God and be brought in into relationship with God and so when you understand that when you see that that starts to help us clarify what's happening so we have two visits to 
the temple. Okay? One early in his career and one at the end of his career. So that brings us to what is Jesus doing? Okay, why is he doing this? And we see if we look at Leviticus, we discuss this looking at Leviticus 14. By the way, did anybody read this ahead of time, the Leviticus 14 passage? Okay. All right, so Leviticus 14, verses uh, 33 through 57, and I'm going to set this up. Who would like to read that passage? We have uh, somebody who wants to read that. Okay, Jana, but let me, let me set this up. Before we get into this discussion, there's a discussion of leprosy um, as it gets onto a person, and it is very. I want to make this very clear. This is not what we call leprosy today or what they called leprosy at the Middle Ages. We don't know exactly what this was um, because the leprosy that we have today medically, that, that what we call leprosy, can't get into the walls. Okay, it can't do that. And so this is something different. But the whole point of it is these were things that happened to somebody or to something that was about judgment and it separated you from being able to worship God or to remain as part of the household. Okay? So understand leprosy is about separation. And there were steps if you were healed and cleansed and how you would have to go to the, the priest. And the priest would examine you, tell you things to do, to be cleansed, to come back, to be reinspected. Okay, and so the first thing, if it showed up, you brought out the priest and he looked at you and said, okay, you got this, go do these cleansing rituals, come back. And if he checked it and you were cleansed, then great, you're cleaned up, good, go, come into uh, worship, come into the camp. But if you are, um, if, if he looks at you and examines you a second time, you are pushed, not only, not only you're not allowed to worship, but you're pushed farther out of the camp, Right? farther out of the city. So those degrees of separation continue to move on. Okay, Leviticus um, 14, go ahead and read verse 33 forward. So 33 to the end? Yes, please. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you have come into the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, and I put the leprous plague on the house and the land as a possession, and he who owns the house Out of the house, after he has taken away the stones, after he has scraped the house, and after it is 
If the plague has spread in the house, it is an act of leprosy in the house. It is unclean. And you shall break down the house, the stones, its timber, and all the plaster of the house. And you shall carry them outside to the city to an unclean place. Moreover, he who goes into the house at all while it is shut up shall be unclean until evening. And he who lies down in the house shall wash his clothes. And he who eats in the house shall wash his clothes. But if a priest comes in and examines it, and indeed the plague has not spread in the house after the house is plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean and the plague defeated. And he shall take to cleanse the house two birds, two that were spiraling and hissing. And then he shall kill one of the birds and anoint the festival the one day. And he shall take the seed of wood that hissed up the spiral and the living bird and dip them in the blood of the slain bird and in the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. And he shall cleanse the house, the blood of the bird and the running water and the living bird with the seed of wood that hissed up in the spiral. Then he shall let the living bird loose outside the city in the open field and make atonement for the house and it shall be clean. This is the law for any that has <coughs> So I want to first point out what was the purpose of all these things to teach when it is clean and when it is unclean. That is when it is when the, we have something that is separating us from God and how you address this. So there's a couple of things here. God is merciful. He is full of mercy. Jesus comes, he cleanses the temple the first time, he inspects it, he casts it, he, he throws them out, he, he, he's actually patient in that first one, you know, he sits down and he makes a whip and then he drives everybody out and overturns the tables. So essentially he's scraping it, right, he's, he's, he's doing that, he found there was a problem, he said scrape it, and then he preaches, draw near to God, the kingdom of heaven is nigh, and he's... He's doing this, and he's teaching his disciples to do this, and the message is spreading, and the message is growing, and it's continuous. And how do we know it's continuous? Because the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests are all showing up all the time, checking in and engaging. They're hearing the message. They're hearing the message. They're hearing the message. And then Jesus comes back at the end of his ministry, almost three years later, and he finds it back doing the same things, okay? And so here we see that, that there's, that there's a, a law here, that it has to be taken down and hauled out. All the stones taken out, all the timber taken out, all the plaster taken out and cast out. Okay, and by the way, outside of Jerusalem, there was an ever-burning trash pile, okay? Right, Gehana, right, which which we understand is imagery for hell, where it's just everlasting ter turmoil. Yes, there's a ministry on, on Gleba that advertises um, they can cure a leper for thirty dollars <laughs> now. So it's it was antibiotics. That's that's my understanding. Right, so which but but that's why this is what what God is talking about here is not what we're talking about today in medical understanding of leprosy. It's not the same thing. Again, we don't know what it is, but it is different. Okay. And the point of the lesson is, this isn't just simply some sickness God is sticking. He's teaching, he's judging, he's, and he's instructing us. Right? Come to repentance so that you can draw near to God. So um, we, we see all that. 
And if we look um, back at Matthew um, chapter twenty, uh, chapter twenty-four, um, we see actually if you back up to chapter twenty-three at the end of twenty-three, verse thirty-seven. So this is this is going to be farther in. I'm just jumping us forward for a second, so we can look at this. We're going to come back later and discuss some more of the Olivet Discourse, but I want to help you understand the setup of what's happening here, right? I'm trying to put these, this section into context for what's going to happen. And so if you understand the first part and you hear what happens at the second part, that gives you the, the framework to understand what's happening in the middle and causes you to ask, say, different kinds of questions. So uh, 20... Uh, 24, or excuse me, 23, verse 37. 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. You guys see that? Okay, who'd like to read that? Um, down through 39 to the end of the chapter. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to point out a couple of things here. One, Jesus speaks to Jerusalem, and he says, those who kill the prophets and stones those sent to her. And there's imagery from the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and some other places about gathering Jerusalem together. God wants to love and care, but you're, you're, you've been in rebellion. Okay? And then he says, this is important. See, your house is left to you desolate, right? We see the abomination of desolation. Here he's speaking to, look, your house is desolate. God has left it. And this is very important. He says this, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say. Now see me no more what? Who's going to see him no more? The temple, right? And you're going to know that in a minute because... We have to remember that despite the fact that we are uh, we have chapters and verses, that this is a terrible spot to break it because it's the same conversation Jesus is having at the beginning of chapter 24. But he's not going to go back into the temple. Okay? He's not going back into the temple. They're not going to see him anymore until... You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, so that is, uh, that is very fascinating. Okay, so Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Somebody read that for us, please. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay. Keep going. Yes, one more. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Okay, I'm sorry. Far enough. So so um, the, the the point that's happening here 
is Jesus is saying these stones are not going to be one on top of another. They're all going to be broken and torn down, right? So you, you think about that in terms of what we heard in Leviticus, right? Jesus shows up once at the temple, cleanses it. He comes back and re-inspects it, okay? And then he pronounces this judgment. I'm not coming in. You're desolate. I'm not going to come back, right? Jesus is God Almighty incarnate, right? And, of course, they've been operating this way, not following God's instruction as to who should be leading worship, okay? The Spirit's no longer dwelling in there, and God comes. He's left. That, happen, that happens um, in, in the Old Testament. And God comes, and he physically comes, and he's walking in there, and he's calling them to repentance, and, and then he says, look, I've come in. I'm now judging you. You've been found desolate. I'm not going to return to that temple, right? And then he says, but, but he does say that he'll return. And he said, blessed is the Lord when they declare him Lord. But that's gonna, only going to happen at, at destruction, at destruction. And he says, this temple is going to be torn down. It's going to be torn down. Yeah, um, yes. I read something interesting that that the temple was an area of like I think six football fields. I'm sorry. The temple area was like six football fields in yes. size, and the stones he's talking about were 60 feet long, 11 feet deep, and or high and eight feet deep, and weighed over a million pounds. You hardly know how to move those kind of stones today, and yet that's what it was built out. Apparently, Herod was an amazing civil engineer, among other things. Well, it, it, and it is truly amazing. I'll make this point that, that you know at this point, Herod's temple is not actually completed, right? Herod doesn't complete his temple until A.D. 62. I think that's right. And, of course, we see at 64 that, that uh, um, you find that uh, Nero starts torturing Christians. In other words, instead of uh, up until that point, Rome, up until Nero loses his mind, Rome actually protects the Christians in a, in a great many ways. The great tribulation to the Christians doesn't happen until Rome turns on that. Now, the, the, the high priests, the Judaizers, they're trying to create trouble for the church, and they do kill the church, and they do create difficulties. But that's the beginning stages of, of the tribulation, the great tribulation that, that is experienced there. It, it isn't until Nero turns on the Christians and then um, it becomes uh, worse and worse and worse. And there's a whole, there's a whole, a lot more things for us to talk about there. Yes? Is it true with the, uh, that fire in the temple, you know, when it was destroyed, melted gold and gold ran between the stones and that's why they, they overturned all the stones? I have no idea. So, so I, ju I just want to say this because we're, we're, we're nearly out of time. I, I want us to understand that, that this is what God is doing in, in this passage. 
and he's helping us understand. So you, you got again, we're looking at Old Testament clarification to understand what's happening here. So we'll be spending a number of weeks moving forward, um, discussing the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we will probably spend a week just making a few touches um, in Daniel and a few places in Revelation. But largely, I want to say this, uh, as it relates to the terminologies like postmillennialism. I think the problem is we get too caught up in what we think postmillennialism is, and I want to make this point. Our whole point is, is that um, we're an optimist in God, okay? That we believe that God's called us to disciple the nations. We haven't done that yet. I believe God is going to allow us that opportunity to do that. Um, everything else that he said that he's given us to do, um, you know, we know that we're accomplishing those things. We believe it in all kinds of areas except for when it comes to this one. And what all I'm trying to say is, how should we live if we understand he's given us this direction, right? How should we be living our lives? I would point you to that passage in Jeremiah 29 where he says, you know, if you feel like you're in difficult circumstances, what do you do, right? You get married. You have kids, and you give them in marriage, and you pray for the peace of the land, and you, you, you work hard, and you build industry, and you do all those things. That's what, Je that's what God told of the people of Israel through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, and that's hard. And, and, and I would make a larger argument that a great deal of the problems that we have today are reflective because of the faithlessness of the church, okay? We, we haven't called out sin now remember, sin also means that if you're calling someone out in sin, the whole point is restoration and grace, right? That's the point of it. But, but I, I would largely argue that the, the reason the United States is in the dire straits that it is is that the church has failed to discipline people in its church, in its walls, in its membership, in, in, in its body who are walking in unrepentant sin. Yes? Okay, but 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 right, but but the context is Jesus is talking about. Remember, he comes in and he inspects it, and then then at the end here in twenty five, right? You're talking about in between. I said that's why we've got to look at the two ends of that passage, and say so he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and and there was Jesus even gives some instructions about when you see these things, and 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 that's going to lead up to what's happening when Rome tears down Jerusalem. It was terrible and it was awful. And if, it, if you were, th this, this actually, if you want to jump forward just a second, and I've got to wrap this up, but in Acts chapter 2, um, after all these conversions, we see in, in, the, in the period after that, it says that they started selling their lands and everybody lived. And yeah. in, in, in what we, we think of this as some sort of socialist, common, um, communist uh, purse, common purse, right? But, but rather what's happening there is, is they recognize they're no longer tied to the land and they're preparing, many of them are preparing for this, we're going to get out of town because we know judgment is coming. Okay, and that's a, that's a, a whole other component of, of understanding that. Let's uh, close out in prayer. Our God and our Father, we give you praise. We thank you for your great mercies. I pray that you would prepare our hearts for worship. 
the renewal of your covenant promises to us. Lord, we rejoice in the baptism of Remy Shaw today. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would move upon us all. Lord, we are your humble servants. Forgive us our sins. Restore us to you in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen.